HelloFresh is on a mission to bring cooking back into our lives with real, whole, healthy ingredients we can feel good about. They do all the shopping, planning, and deliver step-by-step recipes and their ingredients right to your door so you can relax and enjoy all there is to love about cooking. They plan, they shop, you cook. Go to HelloFresh.ca and use code UNCONDITIONAL50 to save 50% off your first box. And he had a perfect life. He had, I thought, everything was perfect. You know, how could he do this? But anyway, bad things happen to good people. (laughs) Or good people do bad things. (laughs) Sometimes good people do bad things. I'm Annalisa Nielsen, and this is Unconditional, a podcast about what it's like to be a mother whose child is sent to prison. This is Wendy. I used to work as a systems analyst till I retired a year ago, and now I'm a personal trainer with the Y, and uh, life's pretty good. I grew up in Saskatchewan, small town of 100 people. Uh, farming community down by by the Manitoba-U.S. border. I had a pretty happy childhood. My dad died when I was 13. And so my mom and I moved to Regina. Totally different life than rural Saskatchewan. But, you know, I adjusted and, yeah, life went on and I got married. And then we moved around between Toronto and Saskatchewan and Ottawa. My son's name is Michael. Pregnancy was fine. He was C-section, <laughs> um, mostly because I gained too much weight. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a very hot summer in Toronto that year. <laughs> it was 1983. He's a second child, so I had two boys. The two boys are only a year and a half apart, and they grew up to be very close. They were great buddies. As they grew, they had different interests completely. One was into computers. Michael was into sports. He did the soccer, competitive soccer, team player sport. He was awesome at soccer, and it just made him feel so good. He'd be beaming, totally exhausted, but he would be beaming, like proud. He achieved something. The boys had a great sense of humor. We would go camping all the time, and they would they would find these rubber the rubber snakes that they'd have in their toy box and stuff, they would hide them in my sleeping bag so that when I would get in at night, (laughs) I would think it's a real snake. (laughs) Yeah, they got the biggest kick out of that. We did a lot of outside, like, I love the outdoors. So we did a lot of uh, hiking and downhill skiing, kayaking, canoeing, camping. Yeah, so we did all those sports. That was fun. And pretty happy childhood. When the boys were seven and eight, Wendy and her husband separated. And Michael has since gone back to figure out where his anger came from. And it stems around when his dad and I separated. Because he could never figure out, he said, so what happened when I was in grade four? (laughs) I said, well, that's when your dad and I separated. So he's gone back to sort of figure out where the anger started. How can I correct it so it doesn't ever happen again, you know? Where I get angry and I lash out at somebody. And the two times he has been in trouble have been both after serious relationships have ended. So it's, it stems back to when his dad and I separated and he, 
even though the boys went for counseling, he didn't open up and discuss it then. He put a wall up and, and let it build. So childhood was, um, was pretty good. Um, we didn't really realize anything was wrong. Um, Michael's anger just came up every once in a while, and I thought it was because his dad moved away. He, he moved to Switzerland for seven years. And um, so we actually, at one point, sent Michael to Switzerland to live with his dad. Um, but at that point, the anger was still there. It didn't solve the problem. So we thought that was the problem, but turned out it wasn't. Michael's anger continued to build, and he started to pick fights at school. If somebody was bullying somebody, that was a good opportunity for him to go in and have a fight. So he would protect the one who's being bullied <laughs> and pick a fight with the other ones because he just wanted to pick a fight. It was his way of getting the anger out. So the sports were probably a really good thing for him, like the soccer and getting, getting the exhaustion out, but it wasn't enough growing up. Michael also began collecting knives. It started with his little jackknife. Then he started buying other knives, just souvenir type of knives, like big ones, um, just as a hobby. Never took them out of the house. They stayed at home. Um, we had long talks about, the, you know, he can't have these and all this kind of stuff, and I would get rid of them. Then he got into some, uh, in middle school, he got into smoking pot. And the drugs didn't go much beyond that, but that was pretty much a daily thing for him was smoking pot. It was a way of releasing his anger. It also affected his schoolwork because his grades went down. With all this trouble Michael was getting into, it almost seemed like he wanted to get caught. He would do something where the police might be driving by and where they would end up bringing him home. I would take him down to the police station, actually, and have them tell them what life's going to be like if they do this, and they'll show them a cell and in hopes of maybe scaring them a little bit that to, to make them shape up and not want to do that. Because they don't want to see people go into the correction systems. They're there to, to keep the peace and everything, but I know we hear a lot of bad things about the police too, but that was a nice thing that they offered. I thought that was really great. I got Michael a big brother, hoping that that might help as well but it wasn't enough. We tried lots of things. Counseling didn't seem to work well either. He was a good kid, but you could see the gradual incline of the anger coming along. And because it was a gradual incline, I wondered what might happen, like something has to turn him around. And I thought, well, maybe he needs a military background when he grows up. You know, he seems to have this fascination for weapons and and police work and all this kind of stuff. He'll either be a policeman or a military person. Um, never thought he would end up on the other side, but anyway, he did. The time before Michael committed his offense, it seemed like his life was pretty perfect. He was in his third year of university. He was living with a bunch of friends in downtown Toronto. He had a girlfriend. He just bought a motorcycle. He was working part-time at his brother's company, and the two brothers were closer than ever. I remember that call after midnight on a cold November 29th. <laughs> he was at the Don Jail. He had suffered two breaks to his neck. He spent the first night at the hospital with guards, 
and before he had a chance to see a doctor, he was taken to the Don Jail. This is not the new Don Jail, this is the old one, which was in pretty rough shape. Michael had been driving while intoxicated, and he crashed his motorcycle. Originally after the accident, they took him to the hospital, they had a guard outside his door, and then within with less than 24 hours, they put him in the Don Jail with a broken neck in two places. They should not have done that. They shouldn't have moved him. While inside, the only medication they would give him was Tylenol. They wouldn't give him anything else because they didn't know if he, does he have a drug addiction? They don't know anything about him. With a broken neck and just taking regular Tylenol, it's the pain's pretty strong. And as well, they had him in the hospital unit in the Don Jail for a day or two, and then they put him in the general population, which they also shouldn't have done because they were overcrowded. And they had three people sleeping in a room. So Michael was sleeping on the floor, and they wouldn't give him an extra pillow for his neck. They wouldn't give him an extra blanket. And in the Don Jail, this was wintertime, the heating system isn't working well. So there's frost on the floors, there's frost on the toilet. And he's sleeping literally almost beside the toilet. So he said, you know, when anybody got up to go, it splashes all over. And, you know, so it was just totally disgusting. The concern also was that, well, all it takes is one blow and he's going to be paralyzed. Like literally, and there's lots of fights inside. <laughs> and he, he saw some pretty horrible things in the Don Jail. There's nothing you can do. Like we were told by the doctor in there, because we kept pushing for medication, and the doctor actually said to Michael, he said, if you don't have your lawyer lay off, you know, we're just going to put you out in the general population. And they did. We were trying to get the lawyer to make things better, and it made things worse. Trying to make sure that your son or daughter is being taken care of as far as if they have any mental health issues or any medications that they need to take. Um, in some cases, it was even glasses. Like, they made him sign things without, he couldn't read them because they wouldn't give him his glasses. They were smashed and they wouldn't let another pair come in. All oh, It's just a nightmare. He did something wrong and he should go behind bars. The problem is behind bars shouldn't be as bad as it is. They're still human beings, and we're not treating them in a humane manner. At the time of Michael's arrest, he was working on completing a Bachelor of Commerce, and he was close to the end of his semester at school. So when he was incarcerated, the professors did let him write his final exams. I mean, he had to really push for that inside. But they agreed that, yes, there was an, an invigilator there to monitor the exams. So that was great. And then after that, he wanted to stay in enrolled. It was a tough decision because all universities, their policy is just to recommend that you withdraw. And that's what most people, anybody that talked to Michael inside after, they withdrew. And they would ask him, how did you stay in? And it was an uphill battle, but his determination was so strong that I thought, well, you know, 
as a family, we'll dedicate the time to this. So it was up to us to contact the professors and explain Michael's situation and could he take their course. Um, it would be textbook learning only, there's no internet access and there's no group work to be done because he can't participate in anything. He can't phone the professor either because the professor's not on the call list and inside you have a call list, approved call list for people. So it's tough. In the beginning we would download the course material, I would mail it, Michael would receive it, do it, mail it back. And then later on the institution decided that they would uh, help him and, and let me email the, the documents. They would print them so Michael would get them right away. So that was a lot easier. And that's the way it, it actually is supposed to work in the system, but they don't automatically do that. So eventually it got easier, but this is probably two years in already at this point. So he has now completed all of the courses. He graduated in June with a Bachelor of Commerce in Economics and Management Science with honors. So he's in the Aboriginal program. So when he was at Bath, which is a medium security, he was in the Aboriginal program there and then he went to a minimum at Joyceville and then he was approved to go to Wasaskan Healing Lodge, which is in northern Quebec and it's strictly a native healing lodge. It's a minimum security prison, but a little more minimum than the other minimum institutions. There he has internet access, supervised by the elders, so he could do a little bit more with the professors and courses and that sort of thing. The Aboriginals have a, a, a good program in that they follow the system the way the system was designed to be followed for all institutions. It just doesn't happen, whether that's because of lack of staff, we're not sure. If you're assigned to a medium institution, you should go from a medium to a minimum. Then you should get escorted temporary absences, ETAs, where you go out with a guard and the guard can take, you know, four or five people out. They can do whatever. They can help at a legion, um, serve, or they can do bingo or whatever in the community. And then they can go to the parole board and apply for UTAs, which is unescorted temporary absences, where they can go out for three days at a time. So when he, he got uh, to the minimum, he could go, he could apply to the parole board for uh, UTAs and he got that, which meant he could be away for three days. So he got to attend his own graduation in June. He was a little nervous. <laughs> I could tell, I picked him up, we had a long drive to Toronto. <laughs> he was so excited and the day of his graduation, he's got the gown on, he's walking through the ceremony and you could just see he was so proud of what he had achieved. <laughs> and I was as well. When he had that paper in his hand, I saw the biggest grin on his face. It was like, oh, there's that little boy again. <laughs> Wendy is passionate about reforming the Canadian prison system, and I imagine that's partly because she's seen the benefits of an effective reintegration program. And this reintegration program, it's really important. Because you can become institutionalized. After too many years inside, it becomes your life and you don't know life outside anymore. 
many people don't even know about cell phones, depending on how long their sentence has been. If your sentence has been for 10 years, you know, a lot has changed in technology in the last 10 years. So when they come out, if they don't go through the normal process of medium, minimum, ETAs, UTAs, then it's a total shock to the system. And I remember when Michael was on his first UTA uh, at the graduation, we were going back and he said he finally understood what it meant to be institutionalized because he said, I almost feel happy to be going home because he knows the routine. He knows what's expected of him. And there's not the stresses that you have in everyday life. So he got a, a sense of how that happens to people. He's since been out on another one and uh, he got over that. <laughs> he now knows he, he'll fit right in. Well, now when he gets out, he'll have a totally different life because he has a criminal record. And you don't get a job these days with a criminal record. It's not just government. It's pretty much most companies have this policy of you cannot have a criminal record. You'll have to be an entrepreneur. And that's tough to think about. Like, does everybody coming out have to be an entrepreneur? There's not a lot of choices out there. A lot of times the person incarcerated doesn't realize the domino effect that they have on everybody. And I tried to tell Michael afterwards, the victim isn't the only victim. Everybody in Michael's family and friends were all victims of what he did. And it takes a while for people inside to realize that, oh yes, what I've done has affected everybody, not just them. Parents, you know, you go through the whole sentence with your child, basically. They're sentenced for 10 years. You may have a little bit more freedom, but you're going through that 10 years too. It hit his brother probably the hardest because they were so close. And it really, really was tough on my son and it was tough on their marriage. It was hard because his wife didn't know Michael all those years that his brother did. So she just sees somebody who's been in trouble and uh, doesn't have that same empathy or, or same compassion as the family member that's grown up with him. She said many times that he would just go walk around the block crying. Yeah, for his brother. His life had to go on, even though it went on without Michael. My mom still doesn't know. She's 96. She doesn't need to know. <laughs> She's in Saskatchewan. <laughs> she wouldn't see him anyway. So um, she did ask about him for a while, but now the dementia is enough that she's forgotten about the kids. So, so we're okay there. Uh, it took me a while to tell my sister. But, you know, eventually you just say, okay, well, if you're not there for me, then that's not a true friendship anyway. <laughs> You hesitate saying anything to friends because you don't know who's going to judge you. And yes, you are judged. And yes, I did lose some friends. But then other friends were right there for me 
Um, we were fortunate enough that we didn't make the news, so that was good. <laughs> I feel bad for those that do make the news because I know they're followed home um, and the parents are just in disbelief of what's happening and uh, they can't get away from it. Anyway, so we were one of the lucky ones in that regard, but um, it's still a very tough time. For many of the women I spoke to, the period right after their child's arrest was the most difficult. For a parent, it's a nightmare. You can't imagine. Uh, um, it's a nightmare that you can't wake up from. It's a roller coaster ride, and there's nobody to talk to. Another unexpected consequence of Michael's arrest was the physical impact that the stress had on Wendy's health. It's a physical and mental health, and it's not just depression, like a lot of people go through depression, but it's all sorts of things inside your body start failing and you go to the doctor and they say, well, are you under a lot of stress? Yes. <laughs> so it's a lot of sleepless nights, the crying continually all day long and all night long. You can go to counseling, but until somebody's been through it, they can't really tell you how you should be feeling or what you can do. You need to talk to people that have been through it that can say, yes, one day it's going to get better. Wendy was lucky enough to find the Mothers Offering Mutual Support Group through the John Howard Society in Ottawa. They were my support group going through all this, but nothing you Google will ever come up. There's, there's nothing out there for families of incarcerated people. There's just not a lot of material. There's nothing to follow. You don't know what the rules are. As a parent, you're afraid to go out and try and seek other people. You know, you don't want to have to say, well, my son's incarcerated, so is there anybody else who has a son incarcerated? <laughs> it's just by chance that you might run into somebody. Then you could maybe have somebody to talk to. You just have to know what to do, and there's nothing written about what to do. I'm fortunate that the victim and Michael are both healthy and alive and will live good lives. <laughs> but it's a disbelief at first. How could this happen in my family? <laughs> How could this happen? We had such a happy life. You know, the boys didn't lack for a lot of stuff growing up. We went downhill skiing, we went on vacations, we did all these things. I tried to teach them everything about the outdoors and, you know, put them in different fun things like archery and stuff. And we did all those things that you normally do with kids. So it's a disbelief that he could do something socially and morally wrong. I think we have this preconceived notion of what the mother of a prisoner is like. We imagine that they're neglectful or abusive or withholding, and that somehow they're responsible for the child's crime. And Maybe this is because it makes us feel like we have some kind of power over the outcome of our children's lives. Like, if I just love my child enough, if I spend enough time with them, if I sign them up for enough extracurriculars, then I can keep my child from doing something that is socially or morally wrong. I think we like to imagine that by loving our children enough, we can make our families immune to a relationship with crime. But Wendy's story is really evidence that this isn't true. 
yes, I've seen the news sometimes and said, oh, how could that person do that? Or how could this happen? And then you realize that, well, it can happen to anybody. One former inmate said, we are all just one bad mistake away from being behind bars. And I thought, wow, she's right. I'm a mom. <laughs> I will be there for him regardless of what he does, and I will try and do the best that I can to help him. I am thankful that he's alive. He could have been killed by the motorcycle. He could have been killed in the incident with the victim. He could have been uh, killed by the alcohol because his blood alcohol level was 0 0.40, so he was over, over the blood poisoning level. So... So he's alive, and uh, there's a reason for that. So life is going to be good. <laughs> Michael is out now on parole. He's living in a halfway house, he's working on his master's degree, and he's enjoying being Uncle Mike to two adorable little nieces. Unconditional is produced by me, Annalisa Nielsen. A huge thank you to Wendy and her family. Special thanks goes to Louise Leonardi of the Canadian Families and Corrections Network. This episode was made possible by Paula Flalo, Lauren Bridal, and the rest of my classmates in the Documentary Media Program at Ryerson University. Thank you to Vid Ingelvix and Don Snyder for consultation assistance. Music by Chad Crouch, aka Poddington Bear. <laughs>